Have you guys ever wanted to be a fly on a wall in a certain meeting? You ever think about this? Okay, there's a couple meetings for me that I would love to be there for. Like that first meeting, and excuse me, Steve Jobs walked into the Apple boardroom and he's like, hey guys, I got an idea for a phone. Like, how do you think that went over? Like, I would have loved to have been there. I would have loved to have seen what was his, like, ideas, and then after they threw it around, like, where did it come out? Like, those things fascinate me. Fascinate me. And there's something so intriguing about these types of meetings. Like, and so I, I wish we could get glimpses into them. There's another one. Another one I wish we could glimpse into is that meeting when the first time the Founding Fathers got together and somebody said, hey, I think we need to go to war with England. Like, what would that meeting have been like? How tense was the room there? Uh, Who spoke up first? What did they decide? Hey, we got to get together and we need to throw some tea in the water. You know, like, what was the conversation like? There's certain meetings that I've always wanted to glimpse. And so today, I don't know if it's because I've wanted to glimpse these meetings that I read scripture the way I did, but I saw this, this passage we're going to look at today as a glimpse into the meeting that led to Christmas, a glimpse into the meeting where Jesus was told by the Father, okay, now go, go. Christmas is coming, you're on, let's do this thing. That's how I saw this passage, and so that's what I want to see today with us. And so this week, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 40 this week. Isaiah chapter 40. It's on page 500 in your pew Bibles. And Isaiah 40, and some of you as you're flipping are probably thinking, what does Isaiah 40 have to do with Christmas? Isaiah comes 700 years before Christmas, but here's the key. Isaiah 40 is quoted in every single gospel by John the Baptist as saying, like John saying, the words of Isaiah 40, and essentially saying, what happened in Isaiah 40 is happening today. What happened then is re-unfolding today. And so what we need to understand today is, if we're going to understand this as a Christmas passage, we need to do two things. We first need to understand the historical background of this passage. We need to understand what Isaiah originally wrote. Okay, because you're going to read it and you're going to be like, this says nothing about Christmas. And you're right, it doesn't. It wasn't written about Christmas. It really originally had nothing to do with Christmas. It wasn't the intention of the author. But what happened with it is John then took it and said, oh, what happened then is happening now. And so what we're going to do is after we understand the original context, we're going to jump forward about 700 years and say, okay, so that's what John saw. And then we'll be able to move into our day as well. So that's the goal. So let's first start with a little background on Isaiah. Because like I said, if we just jump into reading Isaiah 40, you're probably going to be confused. Okay, you're going to say, where are you getting this from? What's going on? Because we're jumping in mid-conversation in Isaiah. So let's get some background. Isaiah was one of the prophets of Israel. Okay, and it's why he's got a book in the major prophet section. It's pretty large, okay? He's a prophet of Israel. And Isaiah lived or ministered between about 730 to 700 BC. So about 2,700 years ago is when Isaiah was living and writing. During that period, Israel was in the midst of what we would call a civil war. 
okay? The country was literally divided in two. In the north, you had the northern kingdom, which we refer to as Israel. And then in the south, you had the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah was the prophet to the south, okay? The king of the south was a guy named Hezekiah. Hezekiah, if you're familiar at all with the biblical history, is like one of the four good kings, okay? If you read the book of 1 and 2 Kings, you know full well these are not the greatest guys. Most of them do not trust God. Most of them have fallen to idol worship, and most of them have even like persecuted and killed God's prophets. These are Israel's kings, and they're not the greatest of people. But Hezekiah is one of the handful of good ones. And so what we see, and the reason Hezekiah is a good one, is he trusts God. He shatters all the idols that have been um, built up and erected in the land. And even more, if you've ever been to Israel, his construction projects still exist today. He undertook some major construction projects that are still in existence today. Isaiah was a very effective, very fruitful, very good king. One day, while Isaiah was king, the north came under attack. The northern kingdom, remember, Isaiah is king of the south, but the northern kingdom came under attack, and it was eventually conquered by the Assyrian um, people. The Assyrians marched in, and they made quick work of the north, and as they were working their way down, obviously, they came to Jerusalem, the capital of of the southern kingdom. Jerusalem was a big, heavily fortified, walled city. So they surrounded it and they put it to siege. While it's under siege, the Assyrians send out a messenger, a spokesman, that calls out against the city. And he calls out two important things. He starts mocking God. He goes, hey, why are you so trusting in your God? The Assyrians have decimated every God that's ever come before them. No God was worthy of stopping the Assyrian army. It's inevitable that your God's going to. And then they start taunting even more. You say you support Yahweh? Well, so did your cousins in the north. They supported Yahweh, and we made quick work of them. Open your gates. Just let us in. It'll all be over. We'll go easy on you. Turn over, Hezekiah. Give up your king. We'll make it easy. Two things, they say. We'll go easy on you. Give us Hezekiah. And who is your God? He's not worthy of protecting you. No one can withstand the Assyrian army. So Hezekiah hears about this. Clearly, he's a little stressed out. Okay? His city's under siege and his people are plotting his demise. So he goes to the temple and he starts praying. He goes, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, help. God, save us. God, I have trusted you. Yahweh, I've, put, I've spent my life serving you. God, help. And then Isaiah comes. God sends Isaiah. And Isaiah tells him, God has heard your cry and God sees your trust. God sees that you trust him and God's got this. Hezekiah, you don't need to worry. God's got this. That night, God sends an angel through the Assyrian camp and kills over 180,000 men. 180,000. I don't know how he did it, but it was probably smelly the next morning. 180,000 men. 
Furthermore, because the Assyrian king is so distraught by this, he obviously retreats, and we're told through history that he retreated back to his temple to pray to his gods because he was so shaken up by this event, he didn't understand what happened. Well, while he's praying to his god, his sons come in and kill him. That essentially begins the demise of the Assyrian empire. So God protected Hezekiah. God protected Jerusalem, God protected the people that trusted in him, and God was proved to be more powerful than any army of the time. It was an amazing thing. And it didn't stop there. God continued to bless Hezekiah his entire life. Over and over, we have stories of how God blessed Hezekiah. It's an amazing thing. What happened, though, as Hezekiah continued to be blessed, his empire grew, his wealth grew, and his cockiness grew. He didn't have anything to fear, right? He had Yahweh on his side. He saw Yahweh decimate the army of the day. He didn't have to fear, so he got cocky. And so one day he's visited by some outside villagers, some foreign dignitaries, if you will, from some small kingdom of the time. And he sees these guys in, and in his cockiness, he's like, oh, come on in. Let me show you everything. Look how cool this stuff is. So he takes them in their house, and he's like, look at the, the storerooms. And then he takes them into his treasury. He's like, look how much I've got. And then he takes them into the temple. He's like, look, we got gold on the doors. It's crazy. We have, somewhere, we have nowhere to put all this gold. So we're just slapping it on the walls. And then he shows them everything. It says that nothing was left for them to see. They saw everything. And so after they leave, Isaiah shows up and he goes, Hezekiah, what did you just do? What are you thinking, you idiot? And Hezekiah's like, what's the big deal? There's a small town. You know, they're just called, there's some small town called Babylon. No big deal. Isaiah looks him square in the face and he goes, you have no idea what you just did. Within a hundred years, Babylon is going to march in here and it's going to decimate the north and it's going to decimate the south and everything you just showed them is going to be carted off to their kingdom. And that's what happens. A hundred years later, the Babylonians march into town and decimate everybody. When the Babylonians come to town, not only do they take stuff back with them and they, they pillage it, they also had a practice of resettling people. So what they would do is they'd come in and let's just say they took half of, of this side of the church. They would repopulate you in the rest of their kingdom. Some of you may be in Italy. Some of you may be in Persia. Some of you may be, you know, wherever. You're going to be all over the kingdom. You're going to be taken from your homeland. You're going to be forced away from your family. You're going to be taken from, from everything you know to find comfortable. And you're going to be forced into a terrible place that you're not comfortable with. And you're going to be a foreigner. At the same time, they would bring foreigners and they would plant them where they conquered. This was just their practice. Now we get to Isaiah 40. What happens at this point is Isaiah has already foreshadowed that these events are going to happen in chapter 39. And now we essentially get a glimpse into the future. 150 years into the future, at the end of the exile, we're going to see this. God looks down at his people and he sees their suffering. God looks down and he sees their pain. He sees that they feel like they've been abandoned. He sees that they feel like they've been forgotten. And he says, now, now I'm going to act. Now I'm going to do something. And that's what we're going to read today. Is God saying, now. 
So as we read, we're in, again, Isaiah chapter 40. We're in verses 1 to 11. Isaiah 40. You've got to have that picture in mind. In the throne room of heaven, okay, we're getting a glimpse into this meeting where all of God's counselors, you know, for whatever that's worth, are surrounding him, his angels, and now God's going to speak. And so we're going to hear different voices speak up in this meeting. And so God speaks now. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And so God speaks. God speaks And then somebody else chimes up. It sounds like the construction foreman calls out. A voice of one calling, In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all the people will see it. And you want to know why? For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Then another guy chimes up. Hey, Isaiah, your turn. Cry out. you got a role in this too, buddy. But Isaiah goes, well, what should I cry out? All the people are like grass. And their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, just because God breathes on them. Then God speaks. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, this is your role. Um, Isaiah, this is your role. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He even gently leads those that have young. This is the word of the Lord. In the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the disillusionment and the forgottenness, God speaks, and he says, now, comfort, comfort my people. Their time of suffering has ended. They've paid double for their penalty. Their sentence is over. It's completed. That's what verse 2 is. Three times he makes it clear. They've had enough. Enough is enough. It's done. It's time to act. I'm on the move. Let's go here, buddy. And so the construction guy of heaven goes... All right, folks, we need to get this going. We need a highway built, super highway. Let's get this going. In the wilderness, verse three, in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. Here's how we're gonna do. We need to make a straight path in the desert, a highway for our God. Every mountain shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. Every rough ground shall become level and the rugged places shall become a plain. God is on the move and nothing's stopping him. Nothing's going to slow him down from rescuing his people. So the foreman of heaven gets to work, and he starts rallying people to his cause, and they get going. They know, hey, God's coming. God's not going to be stopped. God's not going to be slowed down. He is coming. And why do we know this? He said so. He said so. So then he goes to Isaiah. Isaiah, you got a role in this too, buddy. you got a role in this too. I need you to tell the people something. But Isaiah doesn't get it. He's like, what am, who are the people that we should even tell this to? The people have not deserved this. 
The people are, are so fickle. They're fleeting. Their faithfulness, their lives, they're here today, they're gone tomorrow. Or as he says, oh, the people are like grass. And their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. All because God blows on them. They can't withstand you. They're not worthy of this. The people don't deserve this. Why are you doing this? What am I to cry out about? They're not worthy. And God says, you're right. You're right. But that's not what matters. Look what he says. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But what matters, what counts, is that the word of God endures forever. In other words, God made a promise. And he intends to keep it. God does not say things he doesn't mean. When God says, I'm going to watch after the children of Abraham, when God says, I'm going to always have a king on the throne of David, God means it. And so even though the people do not deserve it, it is by God's very character, his very nature, that he cannot help but go to rescue the people. He cannot help it because he said he would. He promised he would always take care of them. He promised he always had their back. He promised he would save them. And so even though they don't deserve it, even though they haven't earned it, God acts. Isn't that so contrary to the way we think about God? I mean, I don't know about you. I, I totally think this way. I, I, I have to fight this, think, this thinking all the time that somehow I deserve God acting on, based on what I do. And then when I'm bad, I go, God, please don't act. Please don't act. Right? I have this karma mentality of I deserve what I get, or I get what I deserve. And therefore, God, you owe me on this. And Isaiah goes, nope. Even God, nope. This is a profound truth we need to recognize None of us deserve God to act to save us. None of us do. We are all grass. We're here today. We're fleeting. We're fickle. We're tossed by the wind. We cave easy. You ever stepped on a blade of grass? It doesn't really stand up very strong. We're weak just because God blows on us. We're nothing. But that's not what matters. In the midst of our desperation, in the midst of our hopelessness, in the midst of our depravity, God speaks and God seeks to act. God acts because it's who God is. God promised it to happen and therefore he acts. He does. And so then he tells Isaiah, here's your role, buddy. Verse 9. You need to tell the people when they come back, when they enter Jerusalem, when they come back to Judah, look at what your God has done. Sing praises on high. Tell everybody how great your God is. Tell them how with his mighty arm he brought you out of slavery. Tell him that like a shepherd guides his flock, the Lord has looked after us and he has brought us back home. Sing his praises. Tell everyone. That's Isaiah 40. That's a cool passage. Because here's the thing, you gotta remember, this was spoken 150 years 
before God acted. In other words, this was not God's backup plan, okay? This was not God's backup plan. Like, for 150 years, as people have been in captivity, he's like, oh, I don't know what to do. Like, what do you think I should do? Should I bomb them? No, God, you should sit out this one. Let them figure it out. All right, God's like, oh, I don't know. Should I, you know, do this, that, or the other? No, I don't. He's not doing that. He acts decisively. And the reason we know he acts decisively is he's telling us 150 years before he acts what he's going to do. And he says, there will be a time when I look at the suffering of my people and I will say, enough is enough. It's time to act now. Go, comfort, comfort my people. Let's do this thing. And when it does, the ball starts rolling and you gotta roll and you gotta roll and you gotta roll. Let's do this thing. The amazing thing about this story is when we look back in history, this is not just biblical history, this is just history in general. We know all of this came true. We know Israel was in exile. We know they were conquered by the Babylonians. And we know that the unthinkable happened. Israel was allowed to return to the land with money to rebuild their temple. God promised all of this in Isaiah 150 years before it happened. God keeps his word. His word endures forever. He made a promise and he intends to keep it. So what does this have to do with Christmas? It's a good question, but before we do, let's play a game. You guys like games? <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm gonna sing part of a song terribly. I'm just gonna, I might as well just throw that out there. It will be, it will be terrible. But I want you to sing the second part of this, okay? I'm gonna, there, there's a point to this, I promise. What was the song I chose? <laughs> I'm dreaming of a Good job, good job, okay. This next one's a little hard. So this is for the people that have grown up in church. So let's see if you get this one. Oh, the wondrous. Good job, Drew. <laughs> the worship leader's got that one. I should have chosen a new song between services. <laughs> All right, ready? It's for the sake of the Y. Well done, folks. Very well done. Okay. Okay, here's the point. Here's the point. Those little snippets of a song, all it took was five or six words, and you were able to connect it immediately with a broader theme, right? You know I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas is a Christmas song. And so you're able to evoke all of the imaginations and all the imagery and all the feelings and all the ideas behind Christmas simply by that song. By like a short lyric, you got the whole song. Okay, and the same thing with the worship song. You know, oh, the wonderful cross is about the cross and what Jesus died for us. You can kind of place it in Easter. You can be a little more familiar. You have a greater understanding than just what that little word said. The same thing with the YMCA. You know the energy that's behind that. Some of you are wanting to do this, <laughs> right? I know you because there's something about that lyric <clears throat> That line that you know, even though it's small, it represents something much larger. 
Well, here's the key. Anytime the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, anytime it does that, that's its purpose. It's using that small little snippet to invoke the entire imagery of the passage it's quoting. It's only using a small line. The people that were originally received the Bible, the first century Christians, they knew the Bible better than we ever will, frankly. They lived on this thing. You said a verse, they immediately knew the context. And so when John the Baptist stands up and John the Baptist says, I am a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, raise up the mountains and lower the valleys, or you know, flip that. Um, the people that heard him immediately understood, oh, John's talking about Isaiah 40. Oh, John's talking about the exile. Oh, John's talking about how God keeps his promise. And then John's people who are looking on the backside of the exile have seen how God has taken care of his people and they hear John provoke this, they go, oh my gosh, there's something greater going on here. John stands in the foreman, the construction role. God has already spoken. He's the second voice. In other words, God has already declared, enough is enough. I'm on the move. Comfort, comfort my people. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's go. And now John speaks. All right, I need a highway. Let's do this thing. Come on. You over there. You over there. We're moving. God is on the move. Nothing is going to slow him down from saving his people. He sees your suffering. He sees your pain. He sees your struggles. And he's coming. That's what we talk about in Christmas. In Christmas, we have God in the person of Jesus showing us that comfort is here. That God has not forgotten us. That God has not forsaken us. That God has not abandoned us in every other way that I could say that that God sees you, that God cares for you, and that God is acting to save you. God is on the move. Let's go, buddy. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. God keeps his word. God did not forget about us. God came just as he came in the exile. He came in the person of Jesus Christ. But so what? So what? Great. It's wonderful. We get to come to church. We have awesome, fantastic Christmas songs. We even have a cross where we talk about this idea that God died for my sins and that one day I'm going to be in heaven. Okay, that's really fantastic. It truly is fantastic. What does that mean for me today? I assume most of you, like me, were thrown this week with what happened in San Bernardino. San Bernardino was a tragic wake-up a reminder that we live in a very screwed up world. We're not safe. We live in a world where people think it's okay to kill people, innocent people, but worse, that somehow a good and gracious God wants them to do it. What the heck is up with that? How screwed up is that? What does that have to do with anything? We live in a world, most of you know I work with students, high school and junior high. We live in a world where online bullying 
bullying, where kids are made fun of the way they look, the way they talk, the way they dress, whatever it is, is at an all-time high. Teen suicide rate is just astronomical in this, in this, in this country right now. What the heck is wrong with this place? We live in a world where men find greater satisfaction with a computer screen than with their own wife. We live in a world where some people find in order to get through it, they have to be numbed by alcohol or drugs. Reality sucks. So they have to be numbed through it. What the heck is going on? We live in a world where it has become rationally acceptable to say, we can kill a baby out of convenience. Oh, it didn't fit my plan. What? We live in a world where even God's own people, if you go on the internet, God's own people, even our Christian politicians that are standing up there, are so filled with fear, bigotry, and hatred that you can't escape it. What the heck is going on? It is wonderful that God came in the exile. It is amazing that Christ came when he did 2,000 years ago. But what about today? This is where I think this passage again speaks powerfully to us. Because we learn more than anything else that God keeps his word. That God does not turn a blind eye to the suffering of his people. That God understands your pain. That God sees your neighbor's struggles. That they see the fights. And that it's not that God doesn't care at all. There is a moment where God will act and God will return and God will make everything right. Because he said he would. Revelation 22.20 Yes, I am coming soon. Jesus declared, he said it, he promised it, he said it would happen, and he has proved himself over and over and over again when the exile came, when Jesus came. He's coming again. We don't need to continue to perpetuate fear. We don't need to perpetuate bigotry and hatred. We don't need to do that. We need to stop being fear mongers and start being hope mongers. If this passage teaches us anything as people of the book, as Christians, as people of the cross, who are able to look back and see how a holy God has kept his word throughout history, as we who sit here, and many of us have testimonies that can continue to attest to how God has worked in our lives, as we do that, we need to be the voices of hope in this world. That's the message we need to share this Christmas season. God has come. God is coming back. God has not forgotten you. God sees your pain. God knows what's going on. There is hope. And I know some of you are thinking, yeah, great pep talk. Love that. You could end right here, John. Pray, and that'll be fantastic. But in truth, you know, I don't actually know outside of my family or my close friends where I'm ever able to share that. You know, I can't bring my opinions into the workplace. I get that. 
I get that fear. I get that idea of, oh, I don't know what the boundary is. I don't know what I can share and not share. I, in reflecting on this and reading many, many Facebook posts, many of us have no problem sharing our political views. Gun control, gun rights. Who our political preference is. We have no problem sharing those, and yet when it comes to speaking hope, we have no problem talking about how we have a fear of Muslims or we have a fear of immigration or how we have a fear of this, that, or the other thing, whatever it is. We have no problem talking about that. Oh, but hope? Oh, I can't do that. How dare I change the conversation? Guys, if we don't do it, who will? If we don't stand up and speak into the culture, the hope of Christ, the reminder that God has not forgotten them, that God loves them, that yes, it looks like the world is spiraling out of control, that ISIS is winning, but it doesn't mean God has stopped. It doesn't mean God is gone. It doesn't mean God has forgotten about us. What we speak is that God has promised to care for us. God has promised to return. And God keeps his word. And we point to how God has worked throughout scripture. We point to how God has worked throughout history. We point to how God has worked in our lives. And we say, look how God has cared for me. And because I have all these things I can point to, I know God's going to help. I know he's coming back. I know it looks crazy. I know it's hard. But friends, God is coming back. God keeps his word. We can speak that message. You don't have to do it as loud or with as much energy as I do. If you did, you'd probably scare people. <laughs> but if you're sitting there and somebody is online or somebody at the workplace is talking about how scary the world is, and it is scary, you can speak up and say, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know. It's, it is scary. I don't get it. But I still believe that God is in control. I believe just as God sent his son, as he promised to send his son, he's going to send his son back. I believe that God keeps his word. We can share that testimony. You can speak that truth. That's not offensive. That's not the same as you taking this book and bashing somebody over the head for not understanding it. Okay? That's not at all the same. That's you being a witness to Christ and saying, I see God in this. That's your role. Your role is not to beat people over the head with this. Your role is to speak hope. Your role is to speak about how God has worked in your life. That's it. If you don't do it with eloquence, if you don't do it as profound as you may think it is, it doesn't matter. The world doesn't need eloquence. The world needs hope. The world needs Jesus, and you have that to offer them. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we give you praise for who you are, that you are a God who acts to save his people, that you are a God who cares so much for us that you sent your son that you are a God who cares so much for us, you told us way in advance that you were going to do it. And so we are not confused at all when we start to see you act in history. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you keep your word. 
We thank you are, that you are a God that is trustworthy, that you are faithful, even when we are not. God, we give you praise and we give you glory that you are a God of grace, a God of love. You are a God who does not depend on our actions, but is wholly independent of the way we act, and that you are good, that you are faithful. And we thank you for the promises of Scripture, and we thank you that you keep your word. And so, Lord, in the midst of this world that we live in, in the midst of terror attacks, in the midst of health crises, in the midst of family disruptions, we just pray, come, Jesus, come. And we say that not just in emptiness, not just to fill space because we don't know what else to say, but we say that because, Lord, it really is one of the only prayers we have to offer. And we say it because we trust you are good and we trust that you will. You keep your word. Come, Lord Jesus, come.